Hi there, this is Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. The NX is back for a new season after an extended break. We're so happy to present a series of episodes we've recorded with sociologists from across the United States on a wide variety of topics. Looking forward to having you along with us this fall and winter. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Louise Seamster, an assistant professor in sociology and criminology and African-American studies at the University of Iowa with a courtesy appointment in the College of Law. Louise is also a non-resident fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Seamster is author or co-author of several recent articles, including a 2021 article in Social Currents, estimating the racial equity effects of student debt cancellation with co-authors Sharon Chenier, Shapiro, and Sullivan predatory inclusion and education debt with Sharon Chenet again, place-based harm and relational development in environmental sociology with Danielle Purifoy, and her solo article, Black Debt, White Debt in Context. She's also written Against Progressive Teleology in the Study of Racism with Victor Ray, among many other pieces and topics. So today on the Annex, Black and White Debt, Predatory Inclusion, Student Debt Cancellation, and Sociology in the Halls of Congress. Louise, thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me here. Well, I want to get started with some of your more recent articles on student debt cancellation. Then we'll work a little bit backwards, then finish with talking about the book project you're currently working on. What can you tell us about the history of student loan debt? How did we get from a system in which each state paid the lion's share of costs for higher education to today, where students and families are now the major payer? The 1960s, when the federal government initially decided to start offering student loans that were then backed by the federal government for students who couldn't pay. Prior to that, as you said, most public universities had been very low cost and funded more directly by state and federal sources. But this was explicitly posed by some people as a way to encourage responsibility, not just here's the only way we can pay for college, but I think it's important to track the rise of that narrative early on that this was partly a disciplinary structure for students to feel responsible. This was picked up by Ronald Reagan famously as governor, where he introduced fees into the UC system, saying explicitly that this was going to discipline those radicals who were causing so much trouble on UC campuses, especially Berkeley. You know, people like my own father were part of the trigger for Reagan not only to introduce fees, but also to use them as a political campaigning strategy to show the working taxpayers that he was going to get a handle on those students by loading them up with debt. I think that's important prehistory that people have been pulling out recently to explain how we got here. This system has kind of chugged along slowly, but with a more recent explosion in the last few decades, where just mathematically, as tuition continues to rise at public universities, and especially over the last two decades, as state funding has gone down fairly significantly for public institutions, we see this acceleration effect where suddenly student loan became first noticeable, and then a crisis, and then the crisis has really broadened, especially even over the last 10 years. Folks have been pointing to the effect of the Great Recession and people, frankly, profiting off of inequality from the Great Recession. This is where Tracy McMillan Cottom's work has been so important to show the student debt crisis was generated um, through this kind of toxic stew of turning towards students as the revenue source 
rather than thinking of education as a public good. And then state governments and universities engaging in a bit of a pact to turn more and more to students as the key revenue generators, especially after the recession, put pressure on state governments and allow them to reconstruct themselves in a post-recession state where they were no longer seeing themselves as the primary funder for public education. Sounds like right around the time that Reagan comes into office as governor of California, you know, a few things are happening. This is a person who's pretty much well known in terms of his politics. But when he was governor of California, there are all these social movements, as you're saying, including the Black Panthers who come into the Sacramento (laughs) state capitol. But really this transition from public pay to private pay, from public good to private good coincides, right, with the rise of more inclusive admissions policies, Mm -hmm. racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity on college campuses. I mean, to me, it's definitely a racialized aspect to these kinds of policies as well. So just as the universities are opening up to students of color, they're also being burdened with increasing amounts of the cost of that education. I was writing about this before in terms of a changing sense of the public shifting in a post-civil rights world where the makeup of the public finally included everybody technically, and suddenly the public became something that's stigmatized. So two special issues on this with Casey Henricks, one on public education and one on taxing. It's really a natural progression to then when we were looking at student debt and trying to understand this shift to reliance on students as debtors to say, if the shift is always away from taxation and into alternatives, like one shift is into fines and fees and reliance away from taxes towards these other regressive sources. And then another one is to see student debt as another regressive shift in payment where we could say, if you do well from going to college, you pay it back in terms of taxes, pretty simple. And instead to saying you should bear the burden. And so all the narrative about this is an individual asset. This is up to you if you want to improve yourself. And also that it became kind of a singular solution to social inequality. So the government doesn't have to offer social programs, doesn't have to lift a finger because any individual needs to raise themselves up for a chance at doing well which is essentially gambling. So yeah, this is why we call it this process predatory inclusion to intentionally show that shift from exclusionary practices to now they're more open, but on much worse conditions. I'm just making a connection between what you're saying and Michelle Jackson's book, Manifesto for a Dream, that talks about the American dream as previously something that was a broad-based set of social programs that lifted millions of Americans out of poverty, not without problems and exclusions, but today the American dream being seen as a private individualistic good where you, as you say, sort of bet on yourself and our mobility is thought to be completely the responsibility of, of individuals. That's interesting. I'm not familiar with that book, but the book that's best encapsulated this recently is Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, where her metaphor of the drained pool is meant to show like what white Americans, kind of the terrible deal with the devil they made to harm themselves essentially by cutting their own public services. And here the drained pool is referring to the many cities that filled in their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. They will accept the loss of many, many kinds of resources in order to not share those resources with people of color in particular. And so I think that there's a lot of important work coming out right now and really trying to take stock of that and reinterpret all these long-term shifts with their present day outcomes to say, why have these social benefits only gotten weaker and weaker? Why are cities so stratified this way? Why have so many services privatized? Why have so many of our public spaces privatized? And then that, why does public education feel more and more like a privatized? <laughs> you know, some resources were shut down to keep them exclusive and other resources were technically opened up 
up, but in a really different format where now students are the tuition dollars. They're seen as kind of the revenue source to not just universities, but a whole host of kind of secondary industries that also take advantage of them. Okay, we can go down the student housing and many <laughs> <Right>. other services, <laughs> uh, which is which I'm very tempted to do as a graduate of a very large public research university for undergrad. And that's been transformed by that industry, actually, in mm -hmm. um, the last decade or so. But for those who aren't really familiar, I wonder if you could help us understand how big an issue is student debt? What is that number? You know, mm -hmm. How big is it? Maybe what are some of the potential downsides of having a student debt that's that huge? And then what are the arguments for and against canceling some or all of that debt? So just trying to translate what the scope of student debt is, you know, you get used to reading in the news, oh, it's reached X trillion dollars and it can be hard to translate. So right now, federal student debt stands at about $1.6 trillion. If we think of that $1.6 trillion as an asset held by the federal government, that would make the federal government the largest single purpose consumer facing bank in the world. And I find that helpful to think of the government that way because activists like to say often your debt is someone else's asset and it's important to think of it that way that it's not just 40 something million borrowers debt but that constitutes an asset on the other side of the relationship it's the largest non-housing form of debt held by americans i believe credit card debt stands at about 840 billion dollars so about half of this amount Student debt is also virtually undischargeable, so the terms make it much harder to lose. And that is one reason to answer the second part of your question, why people are calling for cancellation, because unlike the housing crisis during the Great Recession, we're not going to see an outcome where student debt is lost through default. Even going through default does not spare you from this debt. And so there's really no way out of the system that has been created without some form of cancellation. So that is one of the main arguments for it is that this confluence of events and the terms of the debt have created a debt trap for millions and millions of people. We can get into the, the details of why and how later on, but when we first were proposing this as part of Warren's cancellation proposal in April 2019, very quickly people came out on the other side arguing that student debt cancellation would be regressive. And the short version is this debate is basically who are folks imagining as the modal college student of today? And so people who are saying student debt cancellation would be regressive are imagining what I think of as like the animal house student era student is somebody who kind of goes through life without a care, you know, can choose their major freely and then can leave and is certain to get a job that will provide a return on that degree, which they've presumably earned and then can pay it off. And so statistics get thrown around saying things like over a, a lifetime, you are set to earn a million dollars more if you graduated from college and not. So it's always going to be a, a better deal to have gone to college. And if it doesn't, you always have these income-based repayment programs to see you through. So they're imagining a more wider and mailer and younger student than is the reality, especially since these shifts for profit colleges and shifts in recruitment strategies from nonprofit colleges in terms of who they're imagining, what the returns are, even what graduation rates are, and what the outcomes are for the existing reforms that have tried to make this more manageable for people who don't win straight out from student debt. I mean, there's like a special kind of irony here that the vision of college student that you're you're talking about that these folks who are claiming regressivity, you know, that's precisely the kind of student that, you know, still does exist, but 
you know, was the kind of student that went when public schools were publicly financed. Yes. Right. And so the gains go to a certain kind of person and then that door closes. Mm -hmm. And now we have a totally different mix of students, uh, older students, returning students, you know, blacker, browner, poorer students who are closer to the modal college student. You know, we basically blame those people for taking out loans when it's the only option. Right. This is why I ended up studying debt kind of as a whole, because you can see it much more easily when you look across areas of debt than when you just look at student debt. But when you start to see these consistent narratives that depending on who holds the debt, there's a very different moral story about why you took it on, the likelihood of it paying off for you, whether that debt is good or bad, and whether it reflects on you and your decision making, or whether it's opportunity. And this is what I was writing about in part in Black Debt and White Debt, not just that you're in different worlds, but that that world encompasses even the, the stories told about you. And so, yeah, of course, as fewer and fewer people see that debt investment pay off, we're going to see more and more narratives. It's very convenient form of social reproduction to say, going into college, welcome, take on whatever debt you need. This is going to help you. And then on your way out, to say, you fool, you did it wrong. This debt is your burden for the rest of your life. And it's been very effective been talking to students to realize how much they have taken for granted internalized that their debt is their personal problem. They don't have a feeling even of what it would have been like to have attended a public university when it was nearly free. So that's not even their reference point. They just assume everybody else has gone through a similar system. And if that they've made it and managed that these students should be able to too. And so I spend a lot of time being like, this is new. This is even, you know, very recent. This is not even the college that like people in my generation lived through. They have much, much tighter pressures than we did. Totally. Well, I want to get to a quote from one of your articles, which I think is really shocking and depressing and, and terribly awful, but illustrative of the same of the issue that we were just talking about. So you and co-author Raphael Sharon Chenet quote some previous work that you all did with Laura Sullivan and Tom Shapiro and maybe some others in a recent article on student debt. You said, 20 years after starting school, the median white borrower has paid off 94% of their education debt, while the median black borrower still owes 95% of their debt. So your work makes the case that student debt burdens different racial groups unequally. So how could education debt be mostly good for white borrowers, but bad for black borrowers? So in other words, why was this a trap for black students and not for white students? The first thing I would point out is the median white borrower having almost paid off their loans after 20 years. <laughs> That's not even necessarily a good story. Not, it's not only great. Better. It's not a great story. <laughs> that it takes, you know, 50% of white borrowers from 1996, two decades to pay down their debt or more is not great either. You always have somebody who's worse off to point to, to be like, you're still in debt. You're still gonna be paying a lot in terms of interest. It's just that it also pays you some dividends along the way. And I think I would see college in that category for white borrowers that they would still be much better off from attending college for free than they are <laughs> from paying off debt for 20 years. However, when you look at that statistic and say that the median black student is basically where they began 20 years earlier, that shows really starkly how you can have the same people moving through the same debt form on the same terms because they had the same interest rate and yet they were not living in the same world. And that's why it's important to look at how all of the debt terms beyond interest 
also add up and work alongside things like massive disparities in wealth, where a white family will be much more able to help that borrower pay down their debt at various times to be sending money down the generations system financially, whereas black and brown young people are more likely to be sending money up the generations to assist their own parents because they're the ones who made it to college. For instance, they're not going to be getting money for a down payment on a home so they can buy and save money from renting. White borrowers will be making more money and be able to pay down their debt faster. And then our programs to help borrowers with repayment, they do that by lowering the monthly payment, which means that you're paying less in principle. And so increasingly, I've just been looking at this really basic question, which is how much of this total balance is accrued interest? And it seems like a lot of the balance is accrued interest. And that really reframes what we think of when we think of who's paid their loans and who hasn't. Like black and brown borrowers, one person in a study that Amanda Lewis's team at UIC did describes this as paying student loans as like taking water out of a bathtub with a syringe. You're making payments monthly in many cases, but you can't even make a dent in the interest and so your balance goes up. And so this is just a structural factor of how the loans were created to capitalize interest in many cases to help you manage your monthly payments, but they're not assisting you with the interest. And I will say that that's something that is being addressed. It's not just student debt cancellation, the White House has changed, but they're proposing addressing this as well. But it's because of the work of many activists and scholars in trying to actually sort through this problem. And it requires pushing through the moralizing narrative of, oh, they're just not paying their debt to say, oh, they're paying. (laughs) It's just you've made a system where it doesn't matter if they're paying or not because it's profitable. The pre-existing racial wealth and income gap structure that these students are, if, if they graduate, which is not a guarantee, I think I've not just seen all. national graduation statistics for four-year colleges and universities in the U.S., you know, all students somewhere in like the mid 60% is the six-year graduation rate. Yes. So, you know, just think about the 35% or so folks who maybe take out loans, do not get that credential that they right. started with. And then, you know, they're still saddled with this debt. I mean, I happen to teach at a relatively high cost private university. And we think about this a lot, how much debt that students take on to attend. And then if they do not graduate, we have serious questions and concerns about that as a practical matter, but also as a moral matter when you're saddling people with 10 and 20 and 30 and $40,000 of debt and not graduating them. Reasons that are not of their own making a lot of right. the time. You know, yeah. I mean, these are students that are just as qualified. These are students that are just as committed than others. Right. Those same structural conditions also govern their experience of going to college. So those are the students who are working three jobs and being a full-time student. And I think to some degree, this has percolated out from that for-profit model. We did a unit on student debt this week. So we were looking at commercials for profit colleges. They're not saying choose us over your school or my school or University of Iowa. They're saying, oh, you're working in a job, but you want to do more. So they're presuming that the student is working full time and that they should also be Mm -hmm. a student. And I think that plus the exigency of meeting tuition and also having living costs means that more and more students are not just working on campus cushy job, but they are working multiple low wage entry level jobs and managing those schedules without any consistency to their schedule and then being expected to take a full load of classes while then being told by the university, hey, if you want to save money on your debt, you should be taking an overload of courses to be getting a course free. And all of this has really degraded their experience significantly. But my point is that the students under those financial pressures are much more 
more likely to be low income first gen and students of color. And so that then means that they're also less likely to graduate, which means they're also less likely to get any of the benefit of the degree when they were already facing, you know, wage discrimination on their way out of college anyway. What you're saying is exactly what we find on our campus. It's finances for those who don't complete. And it's also almost equally, it's culture fit. And so ACU is a PWI, has a long history of preferences for white applicants and faculty and other folks. Our folks often say is driving them to not finish and either go somewhere else or just stop attending college altogether. If you can't spend any time on campus, except when you're literally in class, How are you going to find your people if you're feeling financial pressure to where you have to take or you're being a STEM major and not take the classes where you're more likely to find people who are like you, who are in similar structural constraints, then you are less likely to find your people on campus. So you may spend all your time around people who don't experience these issues and you can't relate to. The pressures that students experience to, okay, if you want to make this pay off, you have three choices of major, essentially, that is also then going to make them feel more alienated because they can't find the parts of school that may actually translate well for them and the people who speak to them and the student organizations that they could join. That's not going to be part of their life at all. Well, you mentioned a little bit earlier the White House or the President Biden's plan to reduce the interest on student loans. But probably probably most people who are listening know that President Biden announced a program that would cancel up to $20,000 in student debt for Pell Grant recipients and $10,000 for other borrowers subject to an income cap. So what does your research suggest about this program and how effective do you think it will be in providing substantial portions of borrowers with relief? So we initially did analyses of the effect of various levels of student debt cancellation in April 2019, as requested by Senator Elizabeth Warren in preparation for her proposal to cancel student debt, because when she was contemplating doing this, she wanted to know what was a good amount to cancel that would provide the maximum help to borrowers without increasing the racial wealth gap because of a fear that canceling all student debt would disproportionately benefit the people at that tail end of all borrowers. It's a relatively small number of people who have high debt and then also are going into fields that will be lucrative and help them pay that off. But that drive up the benefit to white borrowers as a whole if you cancel every dollar of student debt. In order to do that, we looked at a lot of different levels of cancellation with and without an income cap. And so in the end, we were proposing that $50,000 of cancellation with new data coming out, it ended up being proposing a range of fifty to $75,000 in cancellation would be best for Black borrowers in particular, who we were looking at, especially because they have the highest levels of student debt of all groups. They got up to a median of $30,000 of household student debt in 2019. So this plan that Biden is enacting now is obviously less than what we had proposed, but I was really happy to see that he included the extra benefit to Pell recipients, both because they are the group that needs it the most and because if you're going to means test a program to do it with the least bureaucratic mess as possible. And so even though it's significantly less than what we had proposed, it is also a huge deal that anybody is just canceling debt straight out and recognizing that student debt itself is a burden and not just on an individual basis, but that this system has become untenable in certain ways. And also canceling this amount of debt 
has the potential to fully eliminate debt for 22 million student borrowers, which is a very large group of people and can make a profound difference in people's lives. So in the same way that student debt has a small upper tail of people who have very high debt levels, it also is front loaded where a lot of people have relatively small amount of debt, about you know 10,000 or less. And those are usually the people who are worst off for whom that $10,000 is still you know, never going to go away. And so eliminating this amount is going to have a very significant effect. And Pell, just for folks who may not know, that's the federal grant program for low-income college students. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, that's okay. that's correct. And so it, it's determined based on income. It's got a pretty low eligibility rate. So the students who are the lowest income out of all people who apply for federal financial aid. And that's been the primary way that the federal government contributes financially to higher education, like at the level of the student rather than the institution. Just in case folks are thinking this is like a very generous amount of money, it's not a very generous amount of money, at least in my view. I mean, our place costs a lot of money per year to to attend, <laughs> um, more than the University of Iowa, even for in-state or probably out-of-state students. We're talking in the range, I think, what the maximum Pell Grant is in maybe $4,000 range. Is that right? Or is it... I would need to check it. It might, yeah. be, it might be around five now. Okay. Um, but, okay, but five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it has not kept up. This is not like your tuition will be covered. Even if your family income is $20,000 a year or less, that you know, the max you can get is 5,000. I believe in Iowa, our in-state tuition, I think is around 13,000 a year. That's not counting your living expenses. And that's at a public university. So I don't know that $5,000 would probably not cover your costs at a community college. In analyses of decreasing government level support for higher education, one of the axes of that analysis is that Pell Grants started relatively robust when they were first started, but that they have not by any means kept up with inflation, much less the cost of higher education. And so that's why they're so little is that they were a big, strong program before. When you have a grant-based program like that, it's easy to just hold it where it is and pretend to not notice how you're paying for less and less for the student as time goes on. Right. So we're feeling good about ten dollars and $20,000 of relief because there's a big bulk of people who are in the most need, who are in the most kind of marginal positions with student debt. So, you know, 22 million out of, you know, about 40 million or so borrowers. So a nice down payment on maybe what could be done. And that's how I see this, because in terms of just shifting the narrative to make this not just possible but enacted it's really only been a few years in terms of the public sphere it's thanks to a decade of work by activists and policy advocates and academics work on this area but i always say i was joking about this as a policy recommendation in 2018 in panels and then in 2019 i got a call to make a policy to make this a reality and that is not very long ago. <laughs> and so I, you know, the fact that we were able to get this into the national discussion and then people were able to keep up that pressure to make this happen is just kind of enormous. And that I don't want to discount that even if it's not the amount that we asked for, I think we have changed the very discussion about what student debt is, whether it's good or bad debt, whether it will pay off, why it's designed this way. You know, when both advocates and critics are saying it's not enough because what about students next year? Or they say it's not enough cancellation or, you know, I love it when opponents say, well, what about 
medical debt? I'm like, yeah, great question. <laughs> that, That's like, a I fine just, idea. <laughs> that like, yes, absolutely. I agree. And to say, I think that this actually, from the perspective of trying to eliminate and delegitimize debt, this is a very powerful move because it does undermine this pretend pact that this form of debt for some reason should never be allowed to go away. That other forms of debt can be made and erased in a minute, like the PPP loans. For some reason, uniquely, wanting to get an education to become an elementary school teacher should be something that should haunt you for the rest of your life. <laughs> you should have to pay for it. As my friend Danielle puts it, like, we know we don't value education because we make you pay for it. Like We can punish you. I think that if we keep this ball rolling, we can really make that reverberation play out in a lot of other ways. Just the, also the other ways that the Department of Education has been willing to restructure debt or the repayment programs. It's not by introducing a new program that has new promises. Many of their changes are saying, we actually messed up this term and we're going to undo it. We are going to eliminate that requirement that's not working. And I do think that they've listened to people pointing to things like, Moynihan and, and Pam Hurd's framework of administrative burden, for instance, to mm. say this is a big mechanism by which student debt and their programs aren't working because people are being caught up with loan servicers and that I actually see policy advocacy and research having immediate effect. I don't think it's any time to like sit back on our laurels, but to take up that momentum and be like, what about the people who went to for-profits and haven't had their de debt canceled and took out what's now $200,000 for a birthless graduate degree? How do we help them? How do we help elders with student debt? How do we help people who've held loans for 20 years or more that we could keep adding on other categories of people to get additional cancellation is my goal currently. Sounds like a, maybe it's a good idea to start thinking about other kinds of debt that we might be able to cancel, which is just a recognition that there are things that are public goods and therefore ought to be provided or purchased or right. know, um, <laughs> offered to eligible people, whether that's higher education or whether that's people who need you know a surgery for something or a treatment for some medical condition or something like that. Like I said about taxes earlier, you know, that categorization here is really important, but just in how you conceive of it. And that when it's a medical debt, even though it's in order to keep you alive, you know, it's somehow seen as something you deserve because you had the cardinal sin of getting sick. <laughs> and so I think there is a huge opportunity to make a push for these things being public goods and that this debt was illegitimate in the first place. I think that's really the only way out of this is to reframe what was the purpose of this loan in the first place, not just that it was for things that didn't pay off the way you were told, but that education should be something that we value and that we pay for. Because we're clearly paying for it either way. It's just the way in which we pay for it that needs to change. Yeah, I think we could talk here about all the things that people can't purchase now or the ways that their kind of life course is altered, especially with either large amounts of student loan debt or low incomes and even modest amounts of student loan debt in terms of kind of how many people think about the life course should be in terms of marriage, maybe, and home ownership and decision to have children and then decision to send those children to college or financing yeah. that part of their lives. You know, there are compounding like social goods that are less accessible for people who are in these debt traps that seem to constitute anyway a drag on lots of other areas of life and then provide opportunities for making money off of that. So individuals aren't buying homes, but you can bet that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> large po deep pocketed you know private equity firms are buying homes right so you're right. locking people right. into renting right? right which is taking away a major source of family wealth generation your work has had as we have just indicated like a lot of policy impact and i'm so curious about 
your experience working with the Warren campaign. You know, you said you got this phone call. For those of us who have not gotten a call from a... <laughs> from the campaign of a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president or any candidate like that. Could you tell us what that was like and what was it like working on that project? I was really lucky that Tom Shapiro had reconnected with me from doing the panel. I think the one where I was joking, cancel student debt in March of 2018, that Rashawn Ray had convened and others about the racial wealth gap. And so he actually was contacted, can you come talk with Warren's staff about race and student debt? And he invited me to be on the call. And it turned into a call in which it was clear that what they needed was for us to do some policy analysis because I'd been working with Raf for several years by then really effectively where he did the work with the SCF in Tom Shapiro's center. Laura Sullivan had been running analyses using SIP data. We had kind of ways in two relevant data sets with different focuses of populations. So because we had such a short time frame for returning our answers, this was, I think, probably the main difference. But the main one was that we needed to have done the analyses and written them up within a couple of weeks. And they have pretty high stakes. So, you know, this was a team I really trusted. And it was a good reason to have wonderful collaborators in hand in general, just in case that candidate calls you up, because I felt like we had a really tight way of working and trusting each other. And then that we could run those two sets of calculations in parallel on two completely different data sets just to like see whether they matched up so that we could feel confident in our results it was really helpful. And yeah, it was just a lot of sending information back and forth. I remember being on vacation and going to Southerns in this time and just spending all my time glued to a screen trying to write up a memo on the phone with staff frequently, you know, as they added additional levels of challenge to our initial remit. And the joke in my family is that I w we were driving to Atlanta to Southerns and I was sitting on my phone, like looking at an Excel spreadsheet being like, whoa, looks like X thousand dollars is the right number. And just like really feeling like this is how policy actually gets written was quite enlightening from living through it. But it, it's been very interesting to have this opportunity in general to work with policymaking staff and see how essential our analyses can be to what they do, because we need to know that it's correct. But we also turn out to have a lot of body of knowledge behind what we do. We have the whole review in our heads. We have thoughts about methodology. So even when they say, okay, how does this impact the racial wealth gap? We had to have a lot of conversations of measured how, like what are we most interested in? Are we interested in absolute or relative wealth differences? And ultimately decide we wanted to look at both and to think about that and make really quick decisions. The paper we ended up publishing in Social Currents shows some of that thought process behind what we did, but I think it provides a good model for analyzing policy. You could do it proactively or retroactively in terms of racial equity. And especially as this administration has made that a priority to think about how do you pull a policy through this racial equity lens using something like the racial wealth gap to say what would the impact be. And then to think about these things that are kind of intuitive to us about how you make these calculations that then you realize like, oh no, you do need to spend time like talking with people and explaining, here's how we measure racial wealth and here's why that matters. It's been really, really interesting and a wonderful opportunity to get to be involved and see how we even throw away things. Like one thing we put in that, the letter we sent officially for Warren's announcement said something about, oh, and the amount forgiven should be tax exempt. And we made that recommendation based on some previous research and that made it into Warren's policy. And, you know, it is now like an object under consideration. And to see how you can take, you know, all this hard work that academics have been doing all this time to like think through all these, you know, little tiny details of a 
program and that we can turn it into something real by getting it in at the right moment is really important. We should think big in terms of what our potential impact is, not just for what's possible in the current landscape, but like try and think about how we could make more possible and how obviously this is a huge amount of luck and being in the right place at the right time. But I have really been pushed to expand out my horizons about what I advocate for and what I think is possible and to push for what I really want to happen and not what I think is reasonable because I would not have thought this was reasonable in 2015. Well, just so you know, what you just said is also consistent with Michelle Jackson's Manifesto for a Dream. <laughs> I personally recommend that. She does advocate more bold steps. We're talking on October 27th, 2022. We don't exactly know when this is going to come out. But recently, several state attorneys general filed suit to prevent student loan forgiveness from taking effect. So they want to stop Biden's program before it offers any of this debt relief at either the ten dollars or the $20,000 level. What's their argument and how is it different maybe from what we've always heard that student loan forgiveness is regressive? We talked about how this program in particular avoids that charge, but what are they saying now? And what might be your response if you're if you're interested in defending Biden's proposal? There's a few different lawsuits arguing different things. And I have found it very striking that out of all the different arguments that are being made, None of them are drawing on the argument that student debt cancellation would be regressive. All of the argumentation that was summed up for the media and political fight over the last few years is nowhere to be found in this legal argument, which I have found notable. <laughs> you watch these political narratives shift on a dime and suddenly, in one case, flip to the opposite. I mean, this is one of the more fringe lawsuits, but a Wisconsin group is arguing that student debt cancellation is harmful because it was designed for racial equity in mind. The things that I just described happening in our research as the benefit described as the harm. And, and keep in mind, this is a universal policy. It just happens to benefit Black Americans because of their differential burden <laughs> by student debt. And that is seen as a harm somehow to America as a whole or the white America that they seem to be implying as their referential group. But, you know, the idea that making policy for racial equity as a goal with somehow a harm it is definitely you know an interesting application of our research and then the six attorney generals who filed suit are making kind of a two-prong argument one is that they are concerned about a potential loss in taxes from future loan cancellation amounts it gets a bit muddy because that's kind of a, a case that is very unlikely to happen given how poorly these reforms have worked and I won't get into the details because I get too drawn into the weeds of that, of in why income drive repayment has failed. But trying to quantify that for them would be very difficult to prove that there's any amount that they're really going to be losing out in taxes. And then the other claim is that they are filing on behalf of loan servicers who would be losing the revenue from having more borrowers in their portfolio. You know, I find this interesting just as an observer, not as a legal spokesperson, but just thinking about the choice to represent loan servicers rather than the borrowers, the often hundreds of thousands of borrowers in your states that are affected by student loan debt and stand to benefit from this. And all the knock-on effects of, of cancellation in terms of having more ability to save money, to buy homes, to do charitable spending, like all of the you know, make other choices with your jobs, all, all the like positive economic effects on your state and that you would rather be defending loan servicers, I think is interesting. But, you know, the short version of my point is to think about the shift from arguing student loan cancellation is regressive to the current arguments. You see kind of what's an often hidden ecosystem of interests mm. and beneficiaries of the student loan system as it is 
come out in these lawsuits that are usually masked by the political arguments. But even the, you know, the secondary ones that aren't in the lawsuits yet, but some entities have said, oh, our public defender's office relies on people who are underpaid. <laughs> Having the hope of getting PSLF cancellation would relieve that pressure of them. So people saying we won't be able to engage in the same level of worker exploitation as before. You know, some people have made similar arguments right. on behalf of the military saying, we rely on the promises from the GI Bill to get people in. What happens if you cancel student debt for our recruitment? But that's when yeah. the curtain kind of is pulled back. We're seeing student debt is benefiting these industries <laughs> and institutions that rely on control of borrowers. And I think that that's a really important thing for us to be watching. Right. So both that your debt is someone else's asset, but also mm -hmm. your debt is an asset in a network that relies on the continued disadvantage of a whole group of people who then are basically used as assets or resources for other kinds of purposes, including the military, including other sorts of public and private entities as a form of capital for them. Yeah. And I think that's really important about debt is that it becomes transposable. There's this multiplier effect that you can invest in someone else's debt, not just by securitizing it, but in all of these secondary and tertiary ways and to see the ways that student debt is embedded in this much larger labor system, but not in ways that help people at all. I really hope people are seeing that and saying, that's not a system we want to buy into. It's not going in a good direction. We could do so much better than this. This is one of the things I love about sociology. When you pull on one piece, you find out how networked in and connected it mm -hmm. is to other institutions, other organizations, other concerns, you know, obviously power and political trade-offs and so forth. Prior to this work, you were studying cities. What's the bridge? You know, what's the connection between cities and student mm -hmm. debt in your history? My dissertation was on a small majority black city in Michigan that had been taken over by the state through what they call emergency management. It meant total control, not just financial, over all the matters of the city and dispossession of all the elected officials. It was really as I was trying to make sense of what was supposedly wrong with the management of this city. I remember sitting in the downtown having lunch one day and reading a paper about Chicago's $2 billion debt and saying, why is this small city's deficit a big enough concern to cause all this trauma and disenfranchisement and harm to this small city. And so I think some of the ideas for thinking about black debt and white debt were seeded there. And I've always gotten a lot out of like switching unit because when you're studying a city, people are talking about it like it's a person, you know, this city in relationship to the other cities around it and the other towns and non-cities and the county, they're kind of personified. And those same dynamics are often relationship dynamics that they've transposed on the cities. And then sort of vice versa that we're thinking about individuals in ways that you can think about analogously and the ways cities turn out to have debt products on offer, the way that their credit scores and fears around their credit scores shape their decisions turns out to be really similar to how it controls individuals' lives. So I ended up working on student debt a lot, but my work on cities has proceeded in parallel to this, just much less opportunity to amplify the results of my research up to this point. But when I was finishing my dissertation project, the Flint water crisis broke into national news and, you know, I added that on as a second case to show here's the, you know, the real material impacts that are possible and that activists were warning about when emergency management was hitting both Benton Harbor and Flint to say that, yeah, when you're not in control of your local system, having control over your behavior and then also being able to profit directly off of inequality has been a focus of mine through all of this work. Well, that's a great segue to talking about your article with Danielle Purifoy on environmental racism. 
In that article, you write, environmental racisms are instrumental to the development of white places. And your case study is Montgomery County, Texas. In that article, how do you show how infrastructure development and the lack thereof exemplify what you call creative extraction? So Danielle and I had been talking for a while about my case in Benton Harbor and then Flint and then her work in small black towns, often unincorporated. And we were just thinking about all the ways they violated our social scientists rules for how you're supposed to make comparisons, like why our two cases shouldn't be similar in their mm -hmm. outcomes. And even so we're very predictable. And so we chose this setting in Texas to study together and kind of test our theoretical hypotheses. And this idea of creative extraction is trying to recontextualize studies of problems that are supposedly within one city to show the world around it and how the resources aren't just lost or disinvested in, they're often just moved right next door. And to show all these little legal arrangements and zoning rules and tax rules and environmental harms, how they work together and are often carried out by the same group of people over time to show the connection between land grabs and where you're citing the factory and where you're building the suburbs and where you're trying to expand the suburbs, we called it creative extraction, both obviously to like lay off of creative destruction and to show how the destruction can be harmful to some and beneficial to others. This paper in terms of environmental racism, but I think urban studies more broadly is to say that we don't want to study these things as just accidents, but to show them as part of more of a concerted goal of preventing independent development in Black places. And that harm through environmental disamenity siting can be a way to prevent development. In our paper, we focus more on water infrastructure and blocking water infrastructure from being built, which we were conceiving of as environmental racism as well. So it's not just that factory spewing pollution. It's also the fact that this place, Tamina, was being blocked from building its own sanitation infrastructure and hooking up to another town's water infrastructure so they had insufficient water for their town. And that this wasn't just a sad story. I think that's the point of creative extraction is that it's very easy to cover Tamina's story as, oh, this place was left behind in progress. From progress, you know, everywhere around it has water. Why weren't they able to get it? And instead, we were saying this town existed 100 years before these other towns grew up around it. And the towns not only took the land from Tamina in some cases, but even cut Tamina's water access and moved it, that they, you know, changed the rules to benefit themselves and to make it very difficult for Tamina to develop because they didn't have the water to do that. And just for folks who don't have a clear picture of Montgomery County, Texas in their minds, we're talking about an area outside of Houston. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about an area that I, I think is in the north part of the Houston metro area right. near the woodlands. Folks might have heard of that area because it's actually not a city as far as no. I understand from reading <laughs> the <not>. article. <laughs> and then next to the woodlands is this other community called Shenandoah. And mm -hmm. then next to Shenandoah is Tamina. And right. so we're talking about, I mean, Houston, the Houston like, metro area is like the third or fourth largest metropolitan area in the United States. So uh, Texas is a big state. There are over 250 counties in Texas. There's a lot of area. We're not talking about a place that's like way off in the panhandle or a place that's like right. way out near no. El Paso or something like that. We're talking about a place that's like very, very close to a major, major metro area in the United States. 
Yeah, you know, you start to see this triangular dynamic. It was important in my research in Michigan to look at how white places are not all the same and that the success of a place like the Woodlands, which was funded with oil money and federal money and loans, is then both normalized and made exceptional. Like you can't use that as an analysis site, we were told often, because people there are just rich. And we were like, (laughs) so yes, rich people go there, but they were able to make the place they were through public funds, through white debt. And so naturalizing that and saying, oh, their fancy downtown just is how it is because of money, I think really understates the degree to which white debt is the source that funds those types of spaces. So if you have the Woodlands, which we thought was very striking that this was never incorporated as a town, and in fact, its residents didn't want it to, we thought that was important because it undermined arguments that Black places in the South were being harmed and lacking infrastructure because they were not incorporated. This is a Mm -hmm. causal argument being claimed And we found the Woodlands because we were like, can we find a white unincorporated place that is having these types of problems of access? Plenty of them have trouble with problems with water quality or the company they hired, but we have not been able to find a place that simply cannot get hooked up to water sanitation infrastructure in the same way. But by doing our searches, that's how the Woodlands came up. And it was really finding the Woodlands that then we were saying, well, can we find a black unincorporated place nearby? Which when we found Tamina and realized that it was actually the land on which the woodlands had even been built that we realized that not only were we like finding an interesting case but that it was illustrating our underlying point (laughs) even better than we thought but but the third party shenandoah as kind of the upstart that wants to be the woodlands but is kind of the muscle harming tamina because it's using tamina as the fodder to try and become like the woodlands which it's Mm -hmm. never going to be because it was not built the same way was this really interesting dynamic that i just keep seeing repeated elsewhere in terms of places being induced to cause harm to black places in the name of having this like white developmental model that is very rare really (laughs) there's not a lot of white rich places the woodlands is exceptional in that way but the idea of wanting to be like the woodlands is extremely common (laughs) And so, yeah, it's just been really interesting to think about these dynamics across the level of place and really generative for us. Well, I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about your book project on creative extraction and the Flint, Michigan water crisis. So what can you share about that? Do you have any hot takes? I'm working on a project with students on campus to make an archive of government emails relating to the crisis accessible on a public website. And we're starting to work with folks in Flint to design how that website should look and what it should include to make it relevant to them. And along the way, I ended up conducting my own research with the archive and and other documents to understand the political and financial causes of the Flint water crisis and really what happened afterwards. I mean, the two cent version is that ultimately it turns out a debt instrument lies underneath this and that it is tied to Flint's lack of local control, but really thinking there's some very major implications in terms of our control of water resources and what it means if a financial actor is trying to get control over water instead of a water company where we've Mm -hmm. usually been looking at water privatization and how much more effective control you get over a city through debt than even through emergency management, that you can induce cities to cause harm to themselves through debt instruments and then not even have accountability. Okay. (laughs) That sounds exciting. And I don't usually say that about debt. All right. We'll have to talk again about that once you're further along or when the book is in press. Well, I want to transition to our banter segment. We tossed around a lot of ideas. 
But Louise, what are you watching on TV these days? As you take a break from the rest of your responsibilities. Right. So we know that sociologists are famously good at turning off our brains and our sociological imaginations for sure. more relaxing. So <laughs> the most recent leisure activity has included watching the new season of Love is Blind. And I've heard that you <laughs> are also an expert in this area. My dear spouse and life partner has gotten me involved watching Love is Blind, who also uh, has a need to relax and turn their brain <laughs> off at the end of the day as well. So, I mean, how do you think about it as a sociologist, Louise? I will also note that I've seen plenty of sociologists analyzing this in great detail on Twitter, so I don't think we're alone. <laughs> good, good. I'm, think... I'm glad to know this show is always on trend. Yeah, it's always been a, a cultural moment each season. And I was joking last week that it actually is very close to like the Stanford prison experiment in its structure. <laughs> um, you know, you could call it the Stanford dating experiment, sure. but like, you know, you've got the people who are locked in, you know, possibly in a basement. They have sensory deprivation, like the producers will admit to that. They don't let them have access to the outside world. They keep them up all night talking and clearly drinking. So they don't know what's up or down anymore. They've been told they're going to fall in love. And yeah. then, you know, I think about how different it would be if they were just isolated all the time. That socializing factor of everybody else being like, I'm in love. Are you in love? <laughs> is very powerful in creating this mass hysteria of like, oh, we're all in love. The imprinting under conditions of great stress of like, are you going to be alone for the rest of your life? Or is one of these 15 people hopefully your soulmate? You have um, 10 days to decide and there are only 15 people of the other gender around. I was thinking the same thing in terms of just the what happens to you when the person you've been with, like these, let's say it's the guys, right? And, you know, you're always watching this door and these guys are coming back and they're like, she said yes. Like, and then they're like talking about practicing their speeches, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, there's that's definitely like obviously a flow to this and there's sort of um, a basic genre that pe folks are following. But, you know, the the intense focus on how are you going to do this thing? Not necessarily like whether you're going to do it or not. And then, yeah. you know, obviously only 15 choices in the whole world for you. And then in 10 days, it's uh, these are not the conditions <laughs> under which most people are uh, finding their spouse or partner. And, you know, not today is kind of this like unspoken parallels to the history of arranged marriages. It feels like maybe to the degree that they feel like it works at all, it's similar that, <laughs> that rediscovering like maybe the like un you know the illusion of eternal choice is wrong and that I should just try harder you know I should just try it with somebody there's something to be said about people's isolation of like they feel like either I'm going to get married or I'm going to like be alone for the rest of my life right. like this is my last chance I'm 25 or 30 or that my life can't be fulfilling otherwise they're like they will say I am ready to get married period and <laughs> just, yeah no like, they made the you choice are also a person married. Yeah they, made the choice, yeah, they made the choice to get married and then they find the person among these 15 as if those are the only choices available, yeah. including there's no choice not to get married in the first place. You know, one thing that does seem striking is that like part of their feeling that they've fallen in love is that they're actually talking to people. And it seems like just the fact that they're having conversation for the first time is they probably don't get to talk to people that much. Then that becomes I'm in love with you. Also, like, you know, kind of a bowling alone, sad commentary on on our ability to have friendship and like meaningful connections that they're also talking about. Anyway, obviously, totally. we talk about That's this what... for quite some time. But yeah, it's all about the sociology here on here on the Annex. <laughs> all right. Well, Louise, thanks so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. You Thank do you. great work. Thanks. Appreciate it. 
You've been listening to the NX, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Big thanks to my guest, Dr. Louise Seamster from the University of Iowa, and to our excellent producers at the City University of New York, Queens College. Joe Cohen directs the Queens Podcast Lab. Music by Alina Orsa. Thanks so much, Lena. Thank you.